Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at the Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Bacchus Barua, the director of the Fraser Institute Center for Health Policy Studies and a leading thinker on healthcare reform in Canada. He's also, I'm pleased to announce, the runner-up of the Hub's Hunter Prize for Public Policy for his thoughtful essay, The DRG Domino Effect, From Hospital Remuneration to Healthcare Reform. I'm grateful to speak with him about the essay, including the benefits of shifting Canada's hospital funding model to activity-based funding from the current practice of global budgets. Before our conversation kicks off, however, listeners will hear Derek Hunter from the Hunter Family Foundation, which has generously supported the Hunter Prize for Public Policy, inform Bacchus that his submission is the runner-up for this year's prize. Nice to meet you, Bacchus. We just, you know, want to say thank you for your participation in this in this project. It, it was a bit of an experiment. But I can tell you that the the number of uh, submissions that were received was uh, substantial, and I just want to say thanks for your participation and for and for I guess you know getting to this point. We really appreciate all the efforts of everybody. And with that, thank you and and Sean, take it away. Yeah, well, let me just let me just emphasize Derek's integral involvement in conceptualizing the prize, and then of course uh, his, the Hunter Family Foundation for providing the generous support to carrying it out. We had a hypothesis that this would be successful in terms of pulling in new and different voices and new and different ideas to, to take on, at, at least in the inaugural year, that the subject of, of wait times, which of course has been such a, a high profile issue in the, in the aftermath of the pandemic. And as Derek says, we're pleased with how successful it's, it, it, it has been so far including, of course, drawing on the expertise and insight of, of people like you, Bacchus. And in that vein, I'm pleased to let you know that you are the runner-up for this year's Hunter Prize for Public Policy, that there was a, a strong consensus amongst our judges that uh, your paper was certainly amongst the best uh, submitted this year, that it represented the kind of pragmatic innovation that we were hoping to kind of pull into the public policy discourse. And I just want to thank you personally. Uh, you know, I think when we thought about the types of people who we hoped would participate, it would be a broad range, including academics, think tanks, scholars, frontline practitioners. And we were pleased to get that kind of diversity. But someone like you, who's been thinking and, and, and writing about these issues for a long time, I think the fact that you were inclined to participate reflects the the kind of credibility and rigor that we were hoping to convey with the prize. So thank you very much and congratulations for your submission and for the tremendous reaction and support from our esteemed panel of judges. 
Well, thank you so much. That is that is surprising and 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 wonderful to hear, and and really really great news. And and you know, I've I've talked to you, Sean and and Taylor, and I'm all about this before. But Derek, you know, I I really want to congratulate and thank you and your family for what they've done with this entire initiative. You know, just the ideas that I saw amongst the top ten. I haven't been able to see obviously the the hundreds that have come in are already incredible. And then even just for myself and for my own team, it actually really helped us sharpen our own thinking on the matter, you know, because we've talked about, you know, something like activity-based funding before, but really thinking about it through the construct that you provided, I think really helped us. And, you know, what what a great service to the Canadian public policy debate that you and the Hub team have done um, to get all of these ideas together and get all of these experts together so that we can, we can share and learn from each other and really push this forward. Because, you know, ultimately we're all on the same page, left, right, center, everybody's interested in, uh, in the lives and well-being of Canadians and healthcare's front and center of that, and yeah, this is just a, a wonderful service to to the Canadian um, population. So thank you for that, um, and thank you very very much for for the generous prize. That is uh, greatly appreciated. Well, thank you and congratulations. Marcus, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on your success in this year's Hunter Prize. It is my absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Sean, and congrats on this amazing initiative that you and the Hub team have put together. Let's start with a bit of background before we get into your policy recommendations. How are hospitals currently funded, and what are the flaws with this funding model? You know, Sean, we've been looking at this for for the better part of a decade, and Canada really stands in stark contrast to the way that other countries fund their hospitals. We're using a very old and outdated approach to fund our hospitals, which is called a global budgeting approach. And that really ties into how our healthcare system is structured. Uh, essentially, at the beginning of the year, hospitals are given um, a budget based on you know, population and historical records. And essentially, hospitals then have to operate under that budget. While this could be good from a cost containment perspective, which it <laughs> hasn't actually managed to achieve either, One of the things that that does is it actually makes hospitals see patients as a cost eating into the budget. Because every time a patient comes into a hospital, that patient is costing that hospital money and eats into the budget. And so therefore, it doesn't really incentivize patients to be treated. Now, this is an approach that many other uh, countries with universal healthcare have, have, have used in the past. But over time, and, you know, as we'll, we'll talk about in, in this paper, they have understood that if you want to incentivize activity, if you want to incentivize hospitals to actually treat patients, you have to do things in a different way. It leads to my next question. What is activity-based funding? Where is it present in other jurisdictions? And what, in your mind, are the relative upsides? Over time, pretty much every other universal healthcare country, 23 out of 28 overall, have shifted towards funding hospitals based on activity. And essentially, that means that money is following the patient. Every time a patient comes into a hospital, the hospital gets money either from the public insurer or a private insurer to actually treat that patient. So the incentive structure is really flipped on its head in order to incentivize treatment. And of course, there you know, can be issues with that as well. But most of the countries have understood that if you don't do it this way, you know, you're, you're dis, almost disincentivizing patients to actually get into their hospitals. The Fraser Institute did a, did a big scan, well, not the Fraser Institute, but Nadim Ismail did a big scan of countries around the world uh, and found that there are only really five countries with universal healthcare that are high-income countries 
they're still with this old outdated approach that we're using in Canada, which is to fund them uh, according to global budgets. Pretty much every other country over time has understood that that is really not an efficient uh, way to, set, to set up your incentive structure. And what you want to do is to say, you know, if there's a hospital, a patient's coming in, okay, the incentive structure is to actually treat that patient uh, and, and put that patient at the center of the system. Let me ask a follow-up, Bacchus, about wait times. Help listeners understand how a shift to activity-based funding, even in a scenario where overall funding doesn't increase, could still reduce wait times. What's the cause and effect here? Well, we have to understand first on that we have a huge wait time problem in Canada. You know, um, the, the last study that was done by the Fraser Institute found that the average wait time was 27.4 weeks in Canada between referral to treatment. That is significantly longer than it was at the beginning of the pandemic when it was about 20.9 weeks. And even that wait time at 20.9 weeks was significantly longer than it was in 1993 uh, when it was just 9.3 weeks. This is a structural problem that has been exacerbated over time due to a combination of things, which really has to do with how Canada separates itself from how other, country, other countries with universal healthcare do things. One of them is how they fund their hospitals. When hospitals are shifted towards actually funding them according to activity, and when we look at empirical data around the world, whether it's Australia, Switzerland, the Netherlands, whenever they shifted towards activity-based funding, you actually ended up seeing an increase in the, in the number of surgeries actually being performed. And that goes into telling you that at the very least, the money that's going into the system is actually translating into services. In Canada, we have a system where for years money has been going into the system, but it's not directly tied into actually providing those services. So one of the fundamental things that activity-based funding does for hospitals is that it ties it very directly into saying, okay, when we do increase money, it is tied very directly into the actual services being provided. So empirically, we see this in countries where, you know, Activities funding is usually included along with other policies, so it's sometimes difficult to disentangle the effects. But absolutely, when combined with 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 other reforms that these countries implemented, they did see reductions in wait times. They saw increases in 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 the number in the volume of surgeries being performed. And even if we do a cross sectional analysis of the countries that have the shortest wait times using data from Commonwealth Fund, countries right at the top like Germany and Switzerland, which really have a true activity based funding system, really have much, much shorter wait times. A Commonwealth Fund says 99% of patients in Germany receive treatment within four months for elective surgery. In Switzerland, that was 94%. And then by contrast, when you look at the poorest performers, which include Canada, Norway, and Sweden, all of them are still stuck in this more global budgeting approach. Now, it's not a one-to-one relationship. You know, you'd have to really study it a lot more. But this is telling us that there is some truth to what's going on there. And even, you know, it's very interesting because when you see the countries that have used activity-based funding within a global budget framework, so kind of mixing the two systems, they end up doing about mediocre. So countries like Australia and the United Kingdom, it's about 72 patients waited four months or less for treatment, and they have a bit of activity-based funding within a global budget framework. Whereas in Canada, stuck with the global budgeting framework, it's only 62% of patients who got their um, treatment within, uh, within four months. So definitely a very strong connection with increase in the volume of treatment. The second question is, you know, whether this still is within an overarching budget for the country or not. Uh, and that'll tell you whether this is going to lead to, you know, per procedure cost increases or the total cost increase. And we have to remember that, you know, while we have to be cognizant of cost increases from a fiscal perspective, from a health policy perspective, 
Austin's quizzes are not necessarily a problem so long as they are translating into services. And this is exactly what activity-based funding is all about, establishing and making that connection rock solid about if we're seeing increases, it's got to translate into actual services. Otherwise, there's a question of where is the money actually going? That's a compelling case. Your essay sets out quite detailed thinking about how such a funding model might work, including a process to establish what you call, quote, a national efficient price, unquote. What does that mean and why is it important? How will it address the inherent supply-demand gap at the core of Canada's healthcare challenges? You know, Sean, this was something that, that I actually discovered much more recently while actually doing this essay and, and going and looking at what was happening in countries like Australia. Um, now, a nationally efficient price is, I think, something that's more important or probably more necessary in a country that decides to stay with a more you know, single-peer sort of framework where you have a system where, let's say, you know, as we talk about later, transfers to the provinces are, are also a factor where you have you know, the public systems essentially funding all the hospitals. You need to have some sort of a weight to give to different kinds of procedures, right? So first, we need to establish a system where we talk about how do we actually group and classify procedures according to complexity. And this is what's usually called diagnosis-related group grouping, DRG grouping. And Canada actually already has a corollary to this called CMG grouping system. But once you have that grouping, you need to find figure out a way to, to assess different weights to it. And, and that goes into, into the nationally efficient price. And there is, an, it, there is a long conversation about whether this is a cost, really, a nationally efficient cost based on what we are already seeing, which I think is probably what we would start with versus a nationally efficient price. And, and then the pricing information would only really come if you actually had a market interacting and people making choices and, 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 and demonstrating the value, the financial value of those different services. The best that we could do within, within the current system that we have without much change would be close to what I would say is a nationally efficient costing system rather than a pricing system, but that is how it's referred to. Sign up for The Hub's free weekly newsletter and receive our best analysis and insights on the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Each Saturday morning, we will send you a compilation of our most interesting and thought-provoking analysis and commentary, along with original news reporting on the people and events driving the public conversation. You can grab the Hub's complimentary weekly newsletter right now by becoming a free Hub member. Do that at www.thehub.ca. Again, www.thehub.ca. Grab your free email newsletter and membership. Act now. You alluded to uh, the Canada Health Transfer in your answer. Talk a bit, Bacchus on possible changes that would be required to the Canada Health Act and in turn the Canada Health Transfer to enable a shift to an activity-based funding model. Well, you know, Tom, this is something which the entire the Canada Health Act and particularly the transfers have been deeply politicized over time. Every time we get into a new round of negotiations for 10 years, we have advocates from different provinces, you know, getting up and advocating for more uh, more funding. And essentially what it does is it establishes a much stronger tie between the federal government and the provinces. But at the same time, because this is still done on you know, a per capita basis, there is a disconnect between the actual services being provided in those provinces and the size of the transfers. And there's also a disconnect between the, the demographics in those provinces and those transfers to a certain extent. There have been a couple of questions about, you know, 
how how should this transfer actually grow with time? What is sustainable and what is not? And again, this is where shifting to thinking about this in terms of actually funding it according to activity will help us depoliticize this entire issue. Where if the transfer starts to work in terms of being connected to the actual activity that is being that is recorded in that province and that is that is performed in that province, we get away from all this political jockeying and say, okay. If, if Canada decides that it wants to have this federal-provincial relationship, at least let's make it such that it is a less opaque, more transparent relationship that is deeply connected to funding and not inadvertently subsidizing other activities that provincial governments might be getting into and really understanding that this is all about healthcare. The second question is about the Canada Health Act. And this is, this is I think, is a much, much larger question. I think in the, in the most direct sense, a change to how the CHT is 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 uh, distributed according to activity would not necessitate really uh, a change in the CHA per se. However, I think what would happen over time is that when provinces start to react to this activity-based funding scenario, I do think that it will actually serve as a bit of a domino effect that will result in provinces understanding that further reforms are needed. Um, once, you, once you have a system where you say, okay, well, we're going to provide the services according to the demand for the services, you're going to probably get the total cost of the system going up. And that's going to make provinces actually think about, okay, well, what is the real true cost of the system without rationing care? And it's going to make it come to the fore. The second thing I think will happen is that it will make provinces think about, well, okay, is this really true demand when it's a zero price? What would actually happen if we have financial incentives to temper it so that the demand is closer to what people actually need rather than what they would what they would uh, demand at, at a zero price system? And there's, there's been great work done by, by Kenneth Arrow and Paul Lee on this. But more importantly, I think shifting the framework towards activity, both from the transfer side and for the hospital side, will just flip the system on its head to change the incentive structure, and I think start to knock other dominoes further to say, to, to bring to the fore what are the reforms that are needed, and then therefore, what are the changes that are required to the CHA? So rather than starting from an ideological standpoint in terms of what, what the changes are, it would actually be more of a revealed preference sort of function going forward over there. Penultimate question, why in your mind is this proposal likely to face less resistance than others, such as the adoption of co-payments or greater private delivery? I think it's very clear that there is no one single solution to Canada's healthcare problems. This is a supply problem. We have insufficient supply and a demand problem. It can be argued that we have we have we have over demand. Because of the way that the CHA is structured and, and its vagueness, I think it becomes very, very politically charged to tweak at the margins in terms of expanding supply through the private sector or, or going towards co-payments and, and, and cost-sharing on, on the demand side. The way that hospitals are funded does not necessarily mean that our system needs to partner with, more with the private sector or that co-payments would need to come in. And in fact, in, in many cases, I would think that, that people who are advocates for the public system could advocate for this because it would actually mean that more people are being treated and, and more money is potentially going into the system. Whereas on the other side, you know, when for, for people who would think that competition is what's needed in our system, 
and, and expansion through private partners could also see the value of this because when hospitals are competing for funds, that actually will incentivize hospitals to be more cost efficient and cost effective and, techni- and technically effective as well, which is, again, something that we see in, in our empirical evidence. And it also would potentially lead to an incentive structure for other players to come into the market further down the road. So this is something where I think a priori, the direction into which it could go could go either way, depending on what provinces figure out is uh, valuable and, and acceptable and palatable to their residents and what Canada decides is politically palatable. But from a starting standpoint, it serves both functions in terms of actually delivering services and making a connection between our funding and what's actually being done. Because you know, one of the biggest problems is Canada is one of the highest spenders on healthcare, but we're just not seeing it translate. We're not seeing it translate into resources. We're not seeing it translate into wait times. And it it's so opaque, the funding system, that we just don't know where the money is being siphoned off. This would really, really, I think, make it very clear uh, the connection between services and, and funding. Because I think everybody's on the same page in terms of, in Canada, about about the importance of of healthcare and the importance of having a universally accessible system. But the question is, if it's not delivering on that promise, then what value is it? This would be one step into actually making that connection between the promise and its delivery. Final question. The essay observes that some provinces have experimented with an activity-based funding model. How optimistic are you, Bacchus, that we may see provinces move in the direction outlined in your recommendations? You know, Sean, we've seen a couple of very small experiments earlier on in BC, and I, and I think it's very hard to draw, and, and, and more recently from in Ontario, but it's very hard to draw drawing analysis out of that because it, they're so limited. They're still within, within a government-defined budget. What's going to happen, what is happening very soon in, in Quebec is they're moving very significantly in a meaningful way towards activity-based funding. And Quebec has really been at the forefront of a lot of reforms in terms of putting the patients first and the system second. Uh, which I think is 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 really what it's all about. So I, I think we might see some interesting things coming out of Quebec very soon. I do actually think even other other governments, uh, including in in Alberta, are are looking at it as well. But and this is this is the this is the big caveat. As long as it's within a provincially and federally determined budget, the results that we see are going to be tempered. And and we, you know as we talked about earlier, we see exactly that when we look at the wait times data for for countries like Australia and the UK. They're in the middle. They're better than Canada. And I think we will probably see those marginal improvements, but they're not where they should be. And and more importantly, I think it will lead to a pressure point in all these provinces where when they shift and they realize the true cost of actually delivering these services in this particular incentive structure may lead to perhaps lower per procedure costs, but larger total costs, it will will be uh, impossible to ignore uh, the conversations about the sustainability of the system in its current form. Not that it's universal or not, but it's about the way that we've structured it. Is this actually sustainable? But in the meantime, why why I still think it's important is because at least then, while all of this is happening, patients will actually be being delivered more services according to what is actually needed over there. So yeah, you know, I think it's it's I think we will see movement. I think it will serve as a domino in terms of resulting in in provinces thinking about what they're actually doing when they actually see the true demand for services. Uh, And I think further down the line, it would lead to more common sense reform down the road. Um, But I think this would be a first step that would serve 
people on either side of the political spectrum and certainly serve the patients who are really should be at the center of the system. That's an optimistic note to end on. Rakas Prua, I want to thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues and congratulations again uh, for your essay. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Hub. And thank you to, to the Hunter family for, for this incredible initiative and sponsoring this research that is really needed in Canada going forward. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.